Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Ed Cressy. I went from being arrested by the FBI to being recognized with a community service award by the FBI director. If you're investigating ways to ignite your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Thank you so much for joining me on the Build Your Network podcast. Thanks for the opportunity to be here, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. No, we'd love to take these conversations, as you know, back to the beginning, because I think it's so important to know the life that shaped us. Uh, so take us back to maybe middle school, Ed. Talk to me about life during that time, you know, how you grew up, that sort of thing. Well, Eric, life for me as a little kid was idyllic. I lived in a very small town in central Massachusetts. Behind our family home, there was this big hill where in the summertime, my sister and I would chase snakes. And in the wintertime, we'd race our toboggans, uh, run around in the woods. It was just a perfect place to grow up as a little kid. Getting into middle school, you know, for me, I was very much into books hmm. and reading. It, it was like a cliche. I was like the little kid who would leave the library with stacks of books almost too high to see over. 
Yeah. You know, because I loved escapes into fantasy worlds. Mm. To me, the world of fantasy was always much more attractive than reality. But my, my imagination would churn out these scenes of dragons heaving fire from scaly lungs and spaceships zooming through the galaxy, shooting laser beams from portals. I was really into books in my imagination. What happened was to get into middle school, I was really a weird kid in a lot of ways. I was uncoordinated. I couldn't compete in gym class or on the athletic fields. I was very sensitive. I would cry quite easily when the teachers yelled or the bus driver pulled over because the kids were getting too rowdy. Eric, where I went to school, reading, crying, and being uncoordinated, that was not exactly a campaign platform upon which one might run for student body president, you know? For me in middle school, the idyllic childhood really turned into a lot of feelings of being bullied, feeling ostracized. I was not able to fit in with the cliques of popular kids. There were some exceptions. I had a great friend, uh, Mike Benson, who remains one of my closest friends to, to this day. Another exception was when it came to writing. I transformed my love of reading into writing. There were times in school when the English teacher would call me to the front of the class to read aloud a story I had written. I remember one time I read my story aloud. The same bully who punched me in the stomach on the playground came up to me after I read my story and clapped me on the shoulder and Mm. said he, he liked what I had written. Writing was one of the first ways I found that I could feel senses of confidence and belief in myself. My dream going back to a very early age, going back to middle school, my dream was to become an author. Unfortunately, what happened was I lacked the discipline. I lacked the perseverance. I could have focused on the positive things in life, the Mike Bensons, the friendships, the successes in writing and going to the front of the English class. I could have focused on those successes. Instead, I focused on the other stuff the negative stuff, the not fitting in, the being unpopular, the self-loathing. In addition to writing, the other way I found to feel those that sense of self-worth was drinking. Hmm. Drinking. 14 years old, drunk for the first time at my aunt's wedding. Even though my I was surrounded by loving relatives at this wedding, I felt like those relatives might have descended from spaceships. You know, that's because I didn't feel a part of my surroundings. When I got those few glasses of purloin champagne into me, when my cousin and his friend snuck us away from the wedding reception into into an apartment and we watched porno movies, Eric, this was one of the first times I really felt like I belonged, like I fit in. And I made those very strong associations between feelings of acceptance and feelings of positive relationships with my peers and those feelings of intoxication. Very strong association. Fast forward to college. In college, I started to tell lies about myself. I would make up stories about how I played football in high school and won fistfights and defended the honor of women. You know, none of those things had ever happened, but I, I, I was never good enough. I never felt good enough. I never pursued my dream of becoming an author Instead, I kept drinking. I drank very, very heavily. I engaged in meaningless physical encounters with women. I told these, made up these stories about myself. I soon graduated, graduated from drinking to heavy drug use. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so it it sounds like 
from what you're breaking down. So it wasn't when you mentioned escaping, you know, cause that was kind of the terminology you used for why you enjoyed reading, you know, it was escaping. It sounds like that was the same th- reason you were using alcohol or, or eventually drugs. Was there anything specific you were escaping outside the feeling of just not fitting in? Did you just feel like no one really understood you or accepted you? Or was there anything else that you were trying to like escape from necessarily? Cause it sounds like you're, you're describing your family as being loving and caring and supportive. Was that, was that the case? They were, they were super supportive and, and kind and, and accepting of you. Well, like anything else, my family, they were supportive. They were loving, they were kind. There were also aspects of my family life that didn't suit me so Mm -hmm. well, yet like anything else Eric, we can choose what to focus on. We don't necessarily have control over our circumstances, yet we have a high degree of control over what we focus on. You asked what I was escaping from. I was escaping from me. I was escaping from myself. I was the, always the kid who was too afraid to stand up for himself on the schoolyard playground. I was always the kid who couldn't think of two words to say to the popular girl at the locker next to mine at the high school in the high school hallway. You know, it wasn't even a romantic thing. She was just uh, this, this girl, uh, Natalie LaFontaine, just a, a nice, friendly, popular girl. She had the locker right next to mine. Every night before school, I thought of what I was going to say to Natalie the next morning. And you know how many words through all through high school I said to Natalie? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Zero. Maybe one or two, but not many more. Yeah. So I was always, always that kid. I was always the person who failed to pursue my dreams. And that's why it's so important, I feel, to really go after our dreams, mm. to really uh, pursue our life's ambition and, and what's in our heart, wherever it, whatever it may be. Because at least in my case, the, the failure to pursue my dream, it led to a life not only of being feeling unfulfilled, and lacking meaning in my mind, lacking meaning all the things that I accomplished in life because society and, and the people around me handed me a lot of things in life. I had that college education. I had a career with a firm called Genentech biotech company that treated me very well. Genentech was actually named the number one best company in America to work for by fortune magazine. I, I was a career professional there. They treated me incredibly well. I owned a home in San Francisco, rode a a big BMW motorcycle, you know, all these things in life. Yet I was still, I still felt this sense of, of emptiness, of lack of meaning, because I never pursued that dream being an author. I filled that hole with a lot of drugs from uh, from heavy drinking to, to marijuana, to a very heavy use of cocaine. And and for the final 11 years of my addiction, methamphetamine. Hmm. And all those, all those things I mentioned, the, the home, the career, the motorcycle, the relationships, much, much more, all those things were gone. It was all gone. I put it all in a glass pipe, smoked it away, ended up spending years in psychosis, destitution, stints in rehab, homeless shelters, jail cells, uh, the psych ward. It was because it was for a lot of reasons, but you know, it, it boils down to I never took advantage of the relationships that were extended to me. I, I had wonderful relationships and I could have turned those into ways to pursue my dream, my, my dream of becoming an author. People believed in me. I never believed in myself. No. What tipped the scales from, from alcohol? Because uh, alcohol, I mean, as you know, like it's, it's pretty culturally accepted 
drug in a sense, you know, like, like a lot of people will say, oh, this is hitting me hard. You know, I'll have a drink at the end of the day. And then obviously it can spiral into alcoholism, but the, the, the bridge from alcohol to drugs seems like for most people, I feel like would seem like that's a big jump. Like, how do you make the jump from this to this? Was it a massive shift of like, you tried it and were in it? Or was it something where it was just this progression of like the alcohol wasn't doing, it wasn't having the effect or being strong enough as it used to. I'm going to try something harder and just gradually moving up. Like what was the, what was the shift in, in going into like more harder drugs? It's a great question to discuss. If there's one thing for people to understand about alcoholism and addiction, at least from my perspective, we as problem drinkers or problem drug users, Drugs and drinking actually are not our problem. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. Mm. For me, my problem was I never pursued my dream of being an author. I hated myself. I used drinking as a solution to my problems. As we know, there aren't enough drinks in the entire world to turn somebody into a completely different person, which is what I was after. I didn't want to be a drunk version of Ed. I wanted to be a whole new person. Yeah. Drinking isn't going to do that. Nothing's going to do that. Nothing's going to turn us into a whole new person. When drinking didn't do it, that's when I switched to to drugs. The other thing that drugs did was drugs gave me a way to to kind of feel like I was that different person. You know, with the Mm -hmm. drugs, I I felt I, I was part of the drug community, meaning I knew to go to a pay phone and I knew the phone number to call and the code. This was that when I was going to college afterwards, we still had pay phones. I knew the numbers to call. I knew the code words to use. I could put on my leather bomber jacket and zoom my motorcycle across San Francisco to the little garage apartment and and hang out. So I kind of knew the secret places to go to get the drugs. And I I had this kind of secret identity, which was the the drug addicted person. All of these factored in. All all of it kind of made me into all of a sudden when I'm using drugs now, no longer am I Ed, the guy who failed to pursue his dreams. Now I'm Ed, who's got this secret clandestine identity. The other part that happened was because I was using so much cocaine and later meth, what started to happen is I would go into temporary psychosis, meaning I would do so much coke that I developed this intense paranoia around law enforcement. Mm -hmm. This, This happens to many of us. Most nights after a coke binge, I would end up at home by myself, peeking through the blinds, peering through the, 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 the peephole in the front door, believing that the SWAT teams were coming to smash down my door or rappelling down the side of my apartment building or landing helicopters on the roof. I was in this temporary Coke psychosis where I'd hear the engines revving that were, I thought were cop cars and the walkie-talkies crackling outside. When the mornings came after my Coke binge, the psychosis went away until I got into heavy meth use, at which point the psychosis became more of of a permanent thing and and truly intensified to the point where I couldn't tell what was psychosis and what was reality. The the two were just so closely intertwined. The kind of storyline through my methamphetamine psychosis was that I had inadvertently befriended one of the 9-11 hijackers who Mm. was in reality an undercover operative working for the Mossad who had infiltrated the September 11th. Eric, I could go on and on and on. The point is that going back to when I was a kid who was so immersed in the fantasy worlds of books, now I'm an adult who's so heavily into meth that fantasy has 
completely re replaced reality and not in a good way. And this, uh, this is what, go ahead. Yeah. As, as that line blurred, it, you know, cause obviously in, initially you can maintain that secret identity. You know, you can be the put together person during the day you're running out, going across town at night to fulfill this addiction. But as that line blurs, it becomes harder and harder to hide it. When was the first time that someone that you you knew recognized what was happening? Did did anybody try to intervene, or was your first kind of time this became known? Was it the first time you were arrested? My close friends, some of my close friends and a family member had a sort of intervention whereby they brought me to the hospital emergency room. Their intention was to have me involuntarily committed mm. for an observation period. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is what was going on at the time. This was in 2003 after I'd been hearing voices. I started to hear these disembodied voices that claimed to be from a cult that mm. was stalking me or claimed to these disembodied voices sounded like my, my parents, my close friends. I, I'd started smashing holes in the wall to look for hidden cameras and microphones. I'd begun ambushing my friends with talk about how I was being followed, things like this. This had been going on and on for weeks before they attempted that intervention. After the intervention, I resented my friends. I resented my family. I felt scared to get help because I believed that if I sought help, that somebody again would try to have me incarcerated. Looking back, Eric, I realized a couple of things. Number one, had I never smoked methamphetamine, no one would ever try to have me incarcerated, hmm. right? So if I point the finger, three fingers point right back at me. I've learned at this stage in my life to, to take responsibility for my poor decisions and my past mistakes to put my family and my friends in a terrible position. Yeah. I mean, imagine your your nephew or your one of your best friends all of a sudden going off the rails like, like I went off. The, I, you know, I put them in a terrible position. The other part I realized is that my feeling scared at back at the time, my feeling scared to get help. I can accept the responsibility. These are really excuses I was making. I was taking the, just like I took the easy road of not pursuing my dream of being an author. I was taking the easy road of saying, Hey, you know, I'm just going to smoke meth because I'm, I'm too scared. They'll just lock me up anyway. Yeah. Uh, even if they had, you know, I still looking back now, I see that was an opportunity for me to take responsibility, to change the direction of my life, to stop blaming circumstances and instead uh, take ownership and empower myself. I failed to do that at the time. Now I look back and I'm very grateful for the relationships I formed, for the, the spiritual beliefs others have instilled in me through those relationships mm -hmm. and for the path that I'm on today. Thanks to God, thanks to amazing people. Uh, now I've been drug free since 2007 and I'm on a, a path of community service, spirituality and self-improvement. So it's an amazing thing. Yeah, that, that is amazing. And what was it that was the wake up call for you? Because obviously, I mean, you went through multiple stints going through rehabs, you know, being arrested, you know, eventually being arrested by the FBI, which is, which is just crazy. What was the moment where you had that change where you said, okay, I need to fix this because th that's the one thing that I've, I've heard over and over again is that, you know, at the end of the day, an intervention, a rehab, like it has to be the person deciding I want to make this change. So what was it for you that said like, this is too far, like this is too much. I need to start making these, these steps toward recovery. It was a series of things for me. There was a time I came to naked on the floor of a padded cell 
That's where the cops had put me after I had been arrested, breaking into my family's home to steal for drug money, then refusing to cooperate with the police, believing that I was an undercover FBI counterterrorism operative. There was that time. There was the time I was in a homeless shelter. I purchased a cigarette for 25 cents. Some guy was selling in that homeless shelter. I was smoking my Marlboro and I realized I just spent one third of my entire net worth on a single cigarette, mm. <laughs> right? You know, cause I only had 75 cents to my name and I just bought a cigarette with a third of that. The, the, t- the night I quit meth for good was in October, 2007. At the time I owned, I think six things. I owned uh, m- my wallet, my cell phone, I owned a filthy black baseball jacket, a pair of Converse tennis shoes held together with duct tape, and I owned a tuxedo, <laughs> of, all, of all things, because I'd worked at the strip clubs, and I kept the tuxedo. But Eric, I had almost nothing else to my name. I lived in a little flophouse hotel with a sink in the corner where I would ash my cigarettes, wash my clothes, and urinate. I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months. On this October night, I threw on my tuxedo, found my way to a fancy downtown hotel, figuring that I was going to go up to the bar and wait for someone to set down a drink. And then when the person moved away, I would take the drink and, and knock it back, which I did before I started getting, you know, I, I moved on from the bar at, and in that hotel room and that, ho- in that hotel lobby on that October night, I found myself at the threshold of a ballroom where a stranger's wedding reception was taking place. I stood at the threshold of that ballroom thinking I'm gonna go in and, and crash because I wanted some food from the buffet table, something to drink. Maybe, maybe I thought I was gonna blend in with my tuxedo. <laughs> you know, someone would mistake me for a groomsman or something. At that moment, at some level, it hit me that in the years leading up to that night, I'd been invited to five weddings. The five weddings were 10 of my closest friends. One of the couples had, in fact, asked me to serve as best man. Eric, out of those five weddings I've been invited to, 10 of my closest friends, you know how many I showed up to? Mm. Yeah, zero, not one. At the same time, it hit me at some level on that October night in 2007 that the disembodied voices I'd been hearing for four years, those disembodied voices, which claimed to be from the FBI and threatened me with torture and imprisonment and horrible deaths, those disembodied voices I considered to be my spouse Hmm. in a twisted way. I was so immersed in this world of methamphetamine psychosis and FBI conspiracies and September 11th uh, delusional beliefs about myself being a counterterrorism operative. I was so immersed in all that that I believe the disembodied voices were my spouses. All of this kind of came to a point on that October night in 2007. I didn't go into the hotel ballroom. I didn't attempt to crash the wedding reception. I shambled the sidewalks back to my flophouse hotel, smoked the last of my meth, smoked the last little bit of my marijuana cigarette, woke up the next day, had a couple of minutes left on my cell phone with one one of those minutes or a couple of those minutes, I called my uncle, the same uncle who had brought me to the emergency room on that intervention that, that we talked about. With my, other, with my few remaining minutes on my cell phone, I called my former 12-step sponsor. So mm-hmm. I, I spent a little time bouncing in and out of right. rehab and bouncing in and out of meetings. I haven't, I haven't used meth since. So throughout that journey of recovery, you know, obviously 
like you said, like missing those weddings, you know, do, you were avoiding these communities of people, you know, that were actively trying to help. How important did community become during the recovery process? Was that a total pivot into now these relationships became vital resources and assets? And and who was maybe one or two of the, the most valuable relationships you had during that time? Yeah, well, community is very important. The, the most important thing, at least to me in recovery, is spirituality. It's a connection with a higher purpose or a higher power or, or God or the universe, whatever name we want to give. Why do what, you think that's so important? I, I, I'm just curious because I, I, I hear a lot of people mention this and I, I come from a religious background and I, I know I've I've heard a lot of people who've mentioned uh, Darren Prince, you know, we mentioned beforehand, um, you know, I've, I've heard people going through recovery mention the importance. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed Survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters. Is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Of a higher power. Why do you think that's so vital to that, to that process? The reason a higher power is so vital to many of us is I feel, at least in my case and in the case perhaps of many others, we have attained things of a material nature, yet we find that they are essentially meaningless without that higher purpose. We, the, one definition of spirituality that I like is that whatever is not material, we can consider spiritual. Hmm. So those of us who fall prey to addiction, who fall prey to alcoholism, who, like me, fall prey to our own poor choices and poor decisions, which lead to alcoholism and addiction, often we are adept at attaining and achieving things of a material nature, yet we find ourselves deeply unfulfilled. When we, and oftentimes, in my case, in the case of many others, 
our addiction and our alcoholism lead us to a place where we we have nothing left of a material nature. In my case, you know, remember I own six things or something like that. And I was on my way to to long-term homelessness. You know, they say, at least for me and for others, we get to a point where our choices boil down to we can get locked up, we can get covered up, like six feet of earth covered up, or we can get sobered up. Those are our choices. So Eric, the point is when we get to that stage in our life, if we get there, really little of the material nature is going to fill that that hole, that void. Whatever it is, that re- remember when we're using drugs addictively or drinking alcoholically, drugs and drinking are not our problem. Mm. They are our attempt at a solution. The insidious thing is drugs and drinking work as mm. a solution. In my case, they worked for a long time. I, I could drink, I could smoke a joint, I could I could smoke some meth or snort some coke and feel like I belonged. And I could tamp down the negativity I had towards myself because I never pursued my dream of being an author. They, they work as a solution to, to an extent, yet when drugs fail as a solution, they often fail catastrophically. Hmm. That's what happened to me. So all of a sudden, here I am in October 2007, I, I have no more solution. The only solution I really knew, drugs, had so utterly and devastatingly failed me that I had little choice but to turn to that spiritual solution. It's probably a little bit different for everyone who gets to the point of saying to herself or himself, hey, I may be a person who's, who's addicted or I'm a person who's, who's alcoholic. One thing many of us have in common is we find that new solution when we have to abandon our old solution of drugs or drinking, we find that new solution in something of a spiritual nature. Faith-based. I, I love faith-based. I'm, I'm a member of a faith-based community myself. Meditation, gratitude, being of service, triathlons. Some mm. people do do triathlons or, or exercise or working out, and they, they adopt it into a spiritual pursuit. There's as many different people as pursue a path of spirituality. There are that many forms of spirituality. Mm. These are, it's, it's a wonderful conversation to have. These are some of my thoughts. I do my best to maintain a, a beginner's mind. You know, they say that uh, uh, in, an, in a beginner's mind are many possibilities. In an expert's mind are few. Yeah. Right. That's uh, Suzuki, the, the meditation, uh, the, the Zen teacher and, and author. So I just, uh, you know, I think of these things a lot. I keep my mind tuned towards, uh, towards God, towards uh, things of a spiritual nature. Mm. And these are the, it, it's been a wonderful path. It's uh, certainly brought me much more fulfillment, happiness, and means of being service to my communities, my family, and, and the, the people around me. Yeah, Thanks well, to this. Yeah, no, it, that might be a good spot to transition to a question we ask a lot, which is, you know, we often ask on the show, do you believe who or what you know is more important? And with mentioning the beginner's mindset, you know, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important in life and why? I'm going to go out on a limb and say both and neither. Hmm. Okay. Both and neither. Both because when I think of what you know, I think of guiding principles. I think of mindsets. Hmm. For me, the guiding principle is what I call the three S's spirituality, self-improvement, and service to others. Mm. When I pursue that path, I don't need drugs or drinking as a solution anymore. And I can give to my communities. I can give to my family. I can give to society. So that guiding principle of the three S's, I think of as what I know. That being said, it was the people in my life that got me to the point of what I know. 
people in my life, remarkable women and men instilled in me these principles. So that is, that to me is critically important. The reason I say neither is because to me, that word no suggests knowledge. What I have learned is that wisdom is what's truly important. Hmm. There's a, a great quote from Lao Tzu. He says that to gain knowledge, add something every day. To gain wisdom, remove something every day, hmm. <laughs> right? Or uh, Jimi Hendrix puts it a good way too. He says, uh, knowledge speaks, wisdom listens. Hmm. So I guess to summarize, I would say that the key principles of what we know are very, very important. Even more important are the people we know who can guide us to those key mindsets and key principles. And even more important than that is that we do it all with wisdom. And, you know, for much of my life, I, I knew a lot of things. I knew a lot of people. I knew how to work in biotech. I knew how to get through college. I, uh, I knew wonderful family members. I knew wonderful friends. I knew a lot. I had very little in the way of wisdom. Mm. You, you saw where all that knowledge got me got me stripped naked on the floor of a padded cell. It got me smoking my uh, last 25 cents in a cigarette in a homeless shelter. It got me to the point where I owned six things living in a flop house hotel. Very little of that, that knowledge didn't get me very far uh, because I lacked wisdom. So wisdom to me is the most important. And I'm, I'm not where ultimately I want to be in terms of wisdom. I'm not trying to portray yeah. myself as some wise person now, but thanks to remarkable people, thanks to incredible relationships, uh, thanks to God, I've, I've gotten uh, at least a modicum more wisdom than, than I've had in the past. Who do you feel has instilled the most wisdom in you or guided you, I guess, in the, in the most meaningful way since the journey's began? I'm sure there's so many that you could name, but who's maybe the, the one that instantly comes to mind when I ask that question? The one, well, the, the one that instantly comes to mind is God, the, the universe, that spiritual mm. presence. The second, uh, on, a, on a more earthly level, I would turn to groups of people. The two groups of people are our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated and are turning their lives around. And ironically, the other group is people in law enforcement, hmm. women and men who, through the course of their work, are dedicated to helping people like me, who are dedicated to helping our sisters and brothers turning their lives around to becoming uh to becoming their best selves and to contributing to society. You know, I, I learned, I worked extensively volunteering with the FBI and with uh, police uh, uh, police um, departments. I volunteered extensively inside maximum security prisons in California, coaching entrepreneurism and employment. I'm so fortunate that remarkable organizations and women and men allowed me to serve as a volunteer. And, and it should be said, uh, it, uh, excuse me if this is obvious, but we do not by any means condone every action taken in the name of law enforcement, any more than we condone the actions of people who, like me, hurt others through our poor choices and committed crimes. Mm. That being said, you know, the, the two groups of people, people who are police and people who are or were in prison or are or were incarcerated, they taught me that behind bars and behind badges beat the hearts of human beings. Mm. That society works best when we look past labels, or excuse me, past uniforms, whether uniforms worn by people in prison or by people who are police, that behind the walls of our jails and prisons, we can find women and men who truly deserve to be walking our streets free. And behind the wheels of our squad cars, we can find women and men who truly deserve to be entrusted with protecting our streets. Yeah. The question is, how hard are we willing to look 
these are remarkable things for someone. And some of it, it, it may seem obvious, but for me, for a person who used to do so much cocaine and methamphetamine, that he worked himself into a state of psychosis in which he believed that a global FBI law enforcement conspiracy was targeting me from a, a person who basically came up a privileged white male. This is my lived experience of a privileged person such as myself who never really used my the many advantages society gave me to give to, to society. I was a person who, let's face it, always thought I was somehow better than mm. people who ended up in prison or in jail. Yeah. Yet uh, our sisters and brothers who are incarcerated, they, they took their time to connect with me on a human to human level. And, and they showed me that it's only because of my birth circumstances that I didn't end up incarcerated for a much longer time than yeah. the relatively short couple of months that I was incarcerated. So yeah. th these are some uh, very powerful life lessons. And fortunately, I'm able to use these lessons and some of the wisdom or all of the remarkable wisdom that other people have passed along, I'm able to use in service to, to our communities. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about your book in, in just a minute. I am curious, and, and I love what you said about law enforcement, how we look at, and we have to look beyond the uniform. I think that's really, really valuable and, and insightful and needed right now, uh, definitely for people to think that way. I, I am curious, just from a, a practical standpoint, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about incarceration just in the general public. There's been a lot of conversation about the war on drugs and that that approach to it. Uh, just from a practical standpoint, as you're working with the FBI, law enforcement, that sort of thing, th there's a lot of folks that, that go out and say, hey, this is a a health crisis, you know, like like people dealing with addiction is not a a, a legal crisis. It's something where we need to get help for people. Uh, there's other people who say law enforcement has to get involved. The DEA is necessary, and and they should be cracking down on this. Uh, where do you think that balance is? Do you think that we are going too hard from a legal perspective to try to deal with this like it's any other crime, or is it? something where we need to put more resources into, you know, mental health resources, recovery programs, that sort of thing. Where do you personally think that balance is? My personal opinion is that absolutely we need to put more resources into mental health and recovery programs. It serves us as a society best. You look at my, you look at the example of me, a person who is so far out there, you know, in methamphetamine psychosis, person, me, who was a complete drain on society. I was cheating welfare. I was stealing from my family. I was shoplifting to eat. I was committing drug-related felonies. I would carry a loaded 357 pistol everywhere I went because I believed that people were after me, coming to kidnap me. I, I go on and I remember I used to sit outside in my apartment in San Francisco, in a major city of San Francisco. I would sit outside in broad daylight with a shotgun on my mm. lap because I was afraid of this FBI conspiracy. The point is, if someone like me could turn my life around, thanks to relationships, thanks to a lot of help, thanks to amazing women and men, if I can turn my life around and give to my communities to the point where I can become a volunteer first responder and a volunteer for the Red Cross like I was allowed to do, many of our sisters and brothers who are struggling with addiction are capable of accomplishing at least as much as Ed Cressy, if not far more. Yeah. To get back to your question, yeah, we need to, I feel we need to provide resources and, and treatment because there is so much that society can get from people who are in, who have put their past mistakes behind them, who have put their histories of addiction and alcoholism behind them. I'm just one person. There are many, many more. To answer the second part of your question, on a practical level, 
if we're going to solve the incarceration crisis in America, we incarcerate, I think, 2.3 million people in this country, a vast majority of them can very well be positive contributors to society, at least as much as me, if not far more. If we're going to solve that crisis, we have to do so in partnership with law enforcement. It doesn't matter what our opinions might be, wrong or right, about law enforcement. We need to go forward in partnership with corrections, with police, with entities like the FBI. It's sort of like losing weight. Hmm. If we want to lose weight, we got to consume less calories than we burn, right? It doesn't matter how we feel about calories. It doesn't matter if we like to exercise. It's a simple formula. We got to consume fewer calories than we burn if we're going to lose weight. In my mind, if we're going to solve the incarceration crisis, if we're going to be the best society we can be, if we're going to keep our streets safe, our communities healthy, and our children's futures bright, if we're going to live together in harmony and live our best lives together as communities, we have to find ways for law enforcement and for the rest of us to work in solid partnership. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. I, I was curious your perspective on that as someone who's seen both sides of it now as someone trying to help and someone who's been helped by some of these programs, what your, what your perspective was, you, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, you know, sacrificing the the dream of becoming an author and it's pretty powerful and poetic that now you've got a book of your own and are using it to fulfill probably a, a greater purpose than you would have imagined even back then. So tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write the book and then uh, really like, you know, what's the core idea that you hope that everybody who picks up a copy of the book will walk away with? When you talk about networking and relationships, it's so important. I got into a, a nonprofit called The Five Ventures, which delivers entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated persons. I was at a Defy Ventures event where I met Seth Godin. You know mm. Seth Godin? Yeah. Yeah, great guy, incredible human being who is a, a big supporter of the cause of Defy Ventures. Seth Godin took a few minutes to talk to me about my dream of writing a book. I don't even remember what Seth said. I don't remember what he said, but it was like he, he instilled a, a little seed of an idea in my mind. Seth instilled a belief in myself. I went forward and I wrote my book. I wrote my book about, uh, about my journey. We have now donated 500 copies to incarcerated people, including men who are incarcerated in Pelican Bay and New Folsom prisons, which are in the minds of many considered two of the more infamous prisons in the United States. So these prisons are like the Harvard and Yale of individuals who are courageously turning their lives around. It's a wonderful feeling to be able to give back. The uh, I've also been so fortunate to have been published in the Washington Post a couple of times. I've been in uh, some. I've had some other articles elsewhere. The you know it's a when I was a kid looking back, my dream was to become an author because even as a kid, I pictured myself at some. Manhattan book signing, you know, at a table surrounded by fans. And then as I got older, I pictured myself partying with mm. Fred Easton Ellis, you know, remember yeah. Less Than Zero and others and, you know, being in Hollywood and writing a script. So even, even when my dream of becoming an author, it was always tainted with these, uh, this, the selfishness, the, the wanting mm. things for myself. Thanks to Seth Godin, thanks to Defy Ventures, thanks to Relationships Networking, God and so many, uh, so many wonderful people. 
Now my book is a means of inspiring others to overcome challenges the way I was inspired to overcome my challenges. I I get contacts uh, from a lot of people whose loved ones are struggling with addiction. They reach out to me via Facebook, via LinkedIn. Sometimes they just call me uh, out of the blue, which is great. Uh, it's it's wonderful. I'm asked to speak at support groups. Hmm. It's just a, a beautiful way of taking a, a mess, a, a travesty of a life, which which because of my poor choices, that's what my life become, and turning it into a means of service to others. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely amazing. And definitely, if you're listening to this episode. Uh, and you resonate with the messages being shared, definitely grab a copy. There's a link in the show notes. So you can you can purchase a copy of the book. Uh, do it right now. Uh, we always say on the show, don't forget to, to do it. Don't wait till later because you will forget to, to add it to your list. So, so definitely grab a copy right now. And uh, Ed, I'm going to go ahead and transition us here to the final round of the show, which we call the random round. Uh, just some quick random questions and some quick answers to them. First of all, what profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? I don't know if fun is the right word, but uh, I would be a Zen monk. I would go to a monastery, maybe in Tibet, and undertake uh, the monastic life. Hmm, interesting. Or a Buddhist, Buddhist monk. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody, past or present, living or dead, and talk with them for an hour, who would it be and why? Uh, my first thought is Jesus, but because there's a controversy of whether he was actually a person, I'm going to go with uh, Nelson Mandela. Hmm. What would be the question you'd want to ask first? Wow. I would ask him uh, to, when Nelson Mandela, reading his book, he he walked out of prison after he'd been a political prisoner for, I think, 30 years. He was, as I recall from his book, in his mind, he was thinking of how he felt towards the people who had wrongfully imprisoned him. And the resentments were creeping in. And Nelson Mandela at that time, at that moment, realized, and again, I'm going from memory from reading the book. At that time, Nelson Mandela realized that if he were going to resent the people who imprisoned him, he might as well turn around and walk right back into prison, you know, because he would be a prisoner in his mind. So I would ask Nelson Mandela about overcoming resentment. And in a larger sense, I would ask him about unifying people like uh, the government of South Africa and uh, the people in the African National Congress and the others who Mandela represented and how we can do that here in America, how we can reconcile law enforcement and, uh, and others in society in this time of extreme polarization. That's what I would ask Nelson Mandela. Hmm. How do you like to learn best? Is it through, I, I'm, I, I, might, I might have a good guess here. Is it books, uh, podcasts, videos? What's your favorite way to consume information? Tim Ferriss, I think, said that a sentence is like a thought crystallized. Hmm. I like that, and that's why I like books. I, I also love the rest. I love podcasts. I love uh, I love other, other mediums too, but books. Somehow, I knew books would be that would be the answer for that one. Uh, give me a glimpse of your morning routine. What does that look like for you? I'm up uh, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Meditation and prayer for an hour or so. Then I do my creative work writing articles or something while I'm still closest to the, the subconscious sleep cycle. I can express myself mm. creatively from there on oh, coffee. There's a lot of coffee and, and green tea involved, a lot of caffeine involved in the morning. I usually get a quick workout for the past six months. Every day I have been going into the river or a mm. similar body of water here in Massachusetts. So there've been some cold days mm. out in that water. <laughs> There's been some days I've had to break through the ice 
and go in that river. But it's a beautiful, spiritual, healthy thing. So that kind of caps off my mornings going into that river for that dip. What's your go-to pump-up song? Springsteen, Thunder Road. Got it. What What is one thing you're not very good at? Self-promotion. <laughs> okay, well, my next question is, where's the best place for people to connect with you and uh, follow your work? Facebook. Okay, awesome. What is it? Is it just under your name, under Ed Cressy? Yeah, it's just under Ed Cressy. You can also, you can go to my website. I, I had a, a beautiful website built for me. It's www.authoredcressy, all one word, gotcha. authoredcressy.com. Well, thank you for self-promoting a little bit today and uh, getting it out there. I hope people will check out your book. And I really appreciate the conversation. You had a, a lot of really good insights and I think it's gonna be really helpful to our audience. So thank you so much for, for being willing to do this. Thank you, Eric. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.